It takes a little getting used to to call Christmas ugly, but that's exactly what we've been doing over these weeks of the Advent season. And hopefully you've caught on to what we mean, where we're going, why we call it an ugly Christmas. Because we can laugh uh, at those sweaters that are indeed best described as interesting, uh, ugly. We can also understand and know that when we talk about the ugliness of Christmas, that it goes much deeper than just a joke. But it is, as we just heard from the Seidel family, it is the ugly purpose that gives us the beautiful Christmas story. That's, that's where we're going, and you've got to think through it. You have to wrap your mind around it. But the Bible teaches us from one end to the other, from the very first page of Genesis 1 to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, that the purpose of God indeed has an ugly dimension to it. And remember, we've been defining that word ugly because it is an adjective. It's found in the dictionary. It can mean unpleasant. It can mean morally offensive. It can be alarming. It can describe something that is hostile or something horrible. Perhaps the best way to determine the meaning of ugly as it applies to Christmas, as we're talking about it this season, is that it is unlovely. It's unexpected. It is, it just doesn't quite make sense. And isn't that really what Christmas is all about for most of us? Because if we look at how God has treated us, if we look at what he intends for us, if we look at his plan for us, it just doesn't ring true. It doesn't make sense. It is, in a sense, ugly. But that is what the Bible tells us had to happen. That is the cost. That is why we're able to celebrate. It's because God in Christ was willing to deal with that which is unlovable, that which is downright ugly. The readings that you've been sharing, or I hope you've been sharing them with us, this past week focused upon the ugly purpose. Most of the readings were out of that letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church that we call Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. A passage that is about this long, but has probably had more books and scholarly articles and commentaries written about it than almost any other passage in Scripture because it is that beautiful description of Jesus where Paul said, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to unpack a a description of Jesus that's beyond just comprehension almost. I mean, it takes volumes upon volumes of written material and thought-provoking discussion to really understand who Jesus is, what he came to be, what he remains as of this very moment. I want to draw your attention in the time we have this morning to a couple of other passages that demonstrate this ugliness 
that had to happen in order for the ultimate beautiful purpose of God to be accomplished in our lives. The first one goes all the way back to the first book of Scripture. It's the passage in Genesis. Those first three chapters give us a description of the creation of all things. And, you know, we mentioned that before, that God created all things out of nothing. That's a very important principle and and doctrine in Scripture. He needed no raw materials. There was nothing here that God, that existed before God. So everything that exists was a product of his divine choice, of his wish and his intent. And so when he created all things out of nothing, the crowning achievement of his creation, we know, was humans, was mankind, you and me, personified in the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, that we find in Scripture. And that's where the beauty and that's where the ugliness all began. It was in that garden scene, the Garden of Eden. It was where God had laid out A perfect place for mankind to live and to reside in perfect harmony with one another. Most importantly, in perfect harmony with God himself. But underneath the surface, there is always that simple fact, and it's hard for us to understand, but you might as well get used to it, that God is not the kind of God who is going to force us to love him. Therefore, we have the potential for evil. The demonic, Satan, described in this passage of Scripture as a serpent. People have tried to go about scientifically making sense of all this, and I'm not sure exactly whether you can or not, but it does appear that in the beginning, the serpent was not the serpent or the snake that we envision today, that that came as a curse upon that serpent. But you remember what happened. The serpent tempted both Adam and Eve, and they took of a forbidden fruit, and immediately they were innocent no longer. They sought to run from the presence of God who created them, who loved them, who had their best interests in mind. And when everything was sorted out, God pronounced the aftermath of their choice. He didn't force them. He didn't put them in a place and say, you're going to love me whether you like it or not. There was always that potential that they would say, no, we're going to follow our own way, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did, which has been exactly the choice that every single person on the face of the earth, even those yet to be born, will do. We all have that issue of sin, of turning away from God. So when everyone was lined up and God pronounced the aftermath of this choice to turn away from him, he spoke these words in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this cursed thing, you are more cursed than all of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Whoa. A lot of words. 
lot of abstract thought, a lot of images that are hard to understand. So let's just simplify it as best we can. You see, you get the idea that the serpent is personified in the snake, which personified evil, was cursed to crawl on his belly as a result of his deceitfulness. That in the beginning, that serpent was not the snake figure that we look at and that we all cower away from today. Or if you don't cower away from a snake, something is wrong with you, and you should. But it's what's behind these elements. It's what's behind the words that God says that paint the ugly picture of the beautiful story of Christmas. The judgment was passed. And God mentions this enmity between her seed, the woman's seed, and seed of evil. Enmity equals war. And as we see, as a result of the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden and the pronouncement of judgment upon all of creation because of that choice of sinfulness and rebellion, that there has been an ongoing enmity between human, between God's way and the way of evil. An all-out war, a struggle between God and evil that's played out in the hearts and the history of mankind. Nothing has ever changed that enmity. Nothing could ever change it except for the very power of God. And to accomplish that victory, it was going to take something very powerful, something that on the surface is downright ugly. The pronouncement of judgment upon mankind and upon evil was so that God's ultimate purpose could be accomplished. And that purpose was what? Was to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us all. It's that image that I can't get out of my mind. When God said, he referring to Jesus to the powers of God. He will bruise you, it says, on the head. You shall bruise him, talking to the serpent, on the heel. Strangest way to describe total, complete victory. That as we look at that judgment, as we look at what God intended, as we look at what that phrase means... You see the distinction? Jesus ultimately will crush the power of evil, much like you would stomp on the head of a snake to kill it. But before that fatal blow would come, the powers of evil will strike and grasp and injure the heel of God's anointed one. You see the power? You see the ugliness that had to precede the ultimate victory? Do you see now in Scripture where it says, He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel? He shall bruise you on the head, 
But evil will take its toll upon you. Evil will injure my son. Evil will permeate the lives of any and all who will buy into the lies of the great deceiver. But ultimately, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who will be born as a baby and grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, will deliver the ultimate fatal blow to the head of evil. You see it? You see the ultimate purpose of God, but the ugliness of accomplishing that purpose of the ugliness of God having to deal with creation that turned away from him and his ultimate plan to bring us back to where we belong carries with it. Yes, beauty carries with it. Peace carries with it eternal salvation, but it comes at a price that's ugly. You can see it in the descriptions of Jesus and other passages of scripture. He's called the wonderful counselor in those passages of Isaiah. He's called the everlasting, the mighty God. He's called the prince of peace. Those are just three of the titles that are ascribed to the one who would come and save us. But in the same passages, he's also pictured as what? As a servant who suffers. A suffering servant. A scapegoat. The idea of on... That day of atonement, that one day of the year when the Jewish nation would would come close to the high priest and he would take a perfect, unblemished animal and sacrifice it. And to another that was standing by, to another animal, he would ceremoniously, symbolically take the sins of the people and cast it upon that goat. And they would cast it out into the wilderness, the scapegoat. Strange images. They don't quite compute with the way we describe things today. But that's our issue. We've got to go back and understand it the way they did. And so you have that same Messiah, a suffering servant, a scapegoat, but yet a perfect sacrifice for each one of us. God's ultimate purpose accomplished in the sacrifice of his son upon a cross. But a purpose, a purpose that came with a great price, a price that's ugly. There's another passage that I want to draw your attention to. It's found all the way over in the other section of the Scripture called the New Testament. It's Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's the 16th chapter. It's verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. And see if you can catch on to what Paul is alluding to here. He had some knowledge that we've just now acquired. He says, now I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, by their smooth and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached us all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. For the God of peace will soon crush 
Satan under your feet. Can you see the picture? Can you envision that what Paul's really actually doing is he's just taking what we learned in Genesis chapter 3, the aftermath and the judgment that came with the fall of mankind, the prophecy of the Son of the one who would come from the woman's seed, representing our Savior, how he would bruise evil and smash him, destroy him with a fatal wound to the head. Can you see where Paul picks up on that? That same struggle of God between God and evil. Paul says in the church of Rome, In your own society, there are people who are at war, who are engaging in dissension, who are trying to pull you away from the truth. And he said, you need to stand fast against them and know that one day, and then he says, soon. How long is soon? One day soon, God will what? God will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we have that promise. We have that beautiful purpose is at the same time ugly. Now, did the people in Rome think that this was going to happen in their lifetime? Is that what Paul meant by soon? No one knows. We are told that in each and every generation since the time of Jesus, that we are all to expect every single generation that rises and those people who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we all should be expecting God to call things to their proper end while we're still alive. There's nothing wrong with that anticipation. Does it mean we're wrong if it doesn't happen? Of course not. Does it mean that all of those people who talked about the soon and sudden return, the advent of Jesus in his second coming, that because it didn't happen in that century or in that generation, that they were mistaken? No. In God's system of timekeeping, we are to be ever ready and to know that in the big picture, God soon in his timing, just as Jesus came into this earth, onto this world at the proper moment in time, not a moment too early, not a moment too late. So God will finally show us the crushing, the ultimate defeat of evil. When he uses that same imagery, he's going to crush Satan under the feet of his children. How long is soon? It's as long as God wants it to be. You notice in the meantime, he tells us he wants us to be, what did he say? Wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. How do we do that? Well, there's another part of this story that we've got a bookend here. Because we started in Genesis The seed of woman, the servant, the Messiah, we know his name, Jesus. We know his story. He will at one point in time smash evil with a fatal wound to his head. Romans, Paul picks up on it. He tells us in no uncertain terms that we're to be diligent That we're to watch out because evil is still all around us. Because the ugliness of evil 
is before us. And that God is going to accomplish his ultimate purpose in crushing Satan under our feet. His ultimate purpose will be accomplished. But it's all the way over there at the end. The book of Revelation. Where the power of evil is described once again. And this time it's not a serpent. It's, you remember, you've got a a sea beast. You have a beast that comes from the earth. And you have an antichrist, a dragon. There are so many symbolic representations that all are wrapped up and describe the power of evil. The power of Satan. And one of those passages over there where it describes evil, this is what the Revelation writer John tells us. He says, I saw this beast of evil, and he had a fatal wound to his head that had been healed. A fatal wound that had been healed. What? How's it possible? A fatal wound... It's fatal. But John says it more than once that the beast had a fatal wound to his head. Hmm. People each and every day in all walks of life have bought in to a lie are pledging allegiance to a power of evil that has been defeated. If we believe anything about the cross of Jesus, what do we believe it accomplished? Total annihilation of evil. Sin, where is your sting? Death, where is your power is what Paul would say. But that evil that has been totally defeated in the meantime appears to be alive. A fatal wound that was healed. Folks, make no mistake, a fatal wound is fatal. Satan's power, ultimate power, is gone. Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he didn't mean my life is over. When he said it is finished, he was saying the victory has been won. But in the meantime, until Christ returns, the power of evil appears to be alive. And they're very successful in appearing to be alive, are they not? For there are people who are committing their lives and who are turning away from Christ, from God, from his will to serve a power of evil that's going to destroy them. And in my way of thinking, I'm simple-minded about it. Until Jesus returns, the power of evil, though that fatal wound to the head is fatal. There's no taking that back. His days are numbered. In the meantime, he is going to take as many of God's creation, of all of his people, as they can. They're going to bring us down with them. That's ugly. But from one end of Scripture to the other... And especially there in the middle where Paul picks up on this theme. He reminds us what God's ultimate purpose is and what it has already accomplished. Jesus crushing the head of evil. Evil appearing 
to have a fatal wound that's been healed. Not possible. But it is entirely possible for people along the way until God wraps up history to reveal all things. There is plenty of time for people to miss the point, to misinterpret his word, and to misconstrue the meaning of the season that we hold so dear. I envy Richard. My brother Richard believes that God lives under his bed. I heard him pray that very prayer not too long ago. I was walking down the hallway to my room and I heard Richard praying. And he said, God, where are you? Are you here? And then I heard my brother say, oh, there you are under my bed. I smiled as I walked on past his door to my own room. But then I had a sudden thought of how different my brother Richard's world is than mine. You see, my brother Richard is 30 years old, but he's had challenges all of his life since birth. And though he's six foot two inches, and height. That's about the only thing that would make you think that he's an adult. Because Richard communicates and expresses himself on the level of a seven-year-old. He always has. He always will. But I wonder sometimes, does Richard, does Richard wonder about the world he lives in, about his routine. It's the same each and every day, week after week, month after month. He catches the bus at 7.05. He goes to the shop where he's a clerk. He comes home in time to walk our cocker spaniel. He eats his favorite meal, macaroni and cheese, and then he's ready for bed. The same routine over and over again. Except for two days of the week when he gathers all the laundry of our entire family. And he hovers over the washing machine as though it's his own private personal possession. And for me personally, I'm glad he took over the laundry because mom always made everything we own turn out pink when it came out of the laundry. Richard owns the laundry, and he takes it very seriously. Oh, I forgot. Saturdays. The bliss of Saturday. That's when Dad takes Richard, puts him in the car, and they head toward the airport, and they grab a Coke at Sonic on the way, and then they park the car on the far end of the runway, and for All morning long, two to three hours, they watch the planes take off. And Richard has a story about every person on every plane. 
Oh, they're going to Chicago. Oh, they're going skiing. Oh, they're just married and they're going to Hawaii. And he goes on and on and he can talk a blue streak of the stories of all the people on those airplanes. That's my brother, Richard. Richard will never know the entanglements of wealth and power. He doesn't care what kind of clothes he wears as far as the label. Doesn't care what kind of food he eats. His life is so simple. And yet, he knows he's always had his needs met He never once considers the thought that one day they may not be. Richard values work, and he works hard. He works hard at work. He works hard when he's making the macaroni and cheese. He works hard when he's doing our laundry. He knows how to start a job, and once he starts one, he does not quit. But when he quits... Richard can relax. I don't know the meaning of the word. You see, Richard is the kind of person that believes that people tell the truth. He believes that promises are to be kept. He believes that you're to be honest. He doesn't know any other way to live. Richard trusts God. He comes to Jesus with a childlike faith that I've long forgotten. It's as though God is his best friend. It's as though God is right there with him. And when I think of my own Christian walk, because I am a believer... When I think of my relationship to God, it gets so cloudy because it's so confusing. I'm the one who's educated. But Richard, he's the one who has a knowledge that I'll never know. I'll never comprehend. You see, as long as my expectations and my understanding and my way of doing things, if I don't trust God and give him those anxieties, then I'll never understand the Christian life like Richard. It's Christmas. It's hectic. A lot of pressure. Lots going on at church. I get caught up in it. And Richard does too, but it's an entirely different demeanor on his face. Because you see, when I get caught up in the choices I've made and the fact that life hasn't been fair... 
when I get all caught up in trying to understand why people do the things they do, Richard just smiles. Because that's what you do when God lives under your bed. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to catch a glimpse of you, to understand your ultimate purpose for us and how at the same time it's an ugly thing. It costs Jesus dearly. Father, teach us to have faith of a child. Teach us to back away and serve you with a whole heart. If there's ever a time of the year where we can make such brash decisions, monumental life-changing choices, it's this time of year. It's this day. It's this moment. And that's what we pray for. In Christ's name, we offer our prayers. And all God's people said, amen. Here's how we wrap up this hour. It's the way we do each and every time we meet. We offer a time of commitment, a time of invitation, a time of making choices. It could be that some of those choices need to be made public today in front of God's people, in front of the world, if you will. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I hope you begin to understand that it's not something you have to do once you have a, a, a certain IQ or you have to have certain things lined up in your life. All you need to do is come to Jesus with a whole heart, asking him to save you, to forgive you. It takes an understanding that we have fallen, that we have done exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It takes an understanding of the power of evil and our desire to flee from it and depend upon God to deliver us. And that's a relationship. So if that's what you need, if that's what you want in your life, it's a a choice you make by prayer. So we're going to have ministers and deacons across the front to encourage, to pray for you. Make that choice. And make it today. If you're here today, you know the Lord. Just never followed him in believer's baptism. There's water up there. It's symbolic as we see it. There's no power in it. But it is a a living picture of dying and being buried in Christ and rising to new life. That's what this season is all about. So if that's something you need to experience, we need to talk about it, come forward. Let's do just that. Let's find a time to chat and to visit. Maybe you're here and God's leading you to unite with this church, church membership. Is it important? Absolutely. God works through his church. We are his body. And if you feel that God is leading you to unite with us, if this is where God wants you to plant your life, how do you join a church like ours? It begins with a movement with coming forward. That's not, that's not it. That's not all of it by any means. But it's a commitment that you make. So in our welcoming you and embracing you, in the life of our church. If that's what God wants you to do, come forward this morning. And then for many of us, what is it that God is moving you to do? What choices does he want you to make? How do you need to view God? 
If you pray, if you're committed, if you're sincere, he'll answer you quickly and he will guide your steps. He always has. He always will. So that's our invitation. I ask you to stand with us as we sing. We wait for you here right now.